It's six o'clock. Love Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. And this is Thursday, February 8th, 2018, How Time Flies. Why do some people win and others lose in a court of law? The answer, especially in foreclosure cases, is how little or how much the attorney for either side knows about the laws and rules of evidence. Tonight, we talk about evidence as a process. I can't compress a full year of law school and 41 years of experience into a half-hour radio show or even the three-and-a-half-hour webinar coming up next week, next Friday, February 16, 2018. Check the Living Lies blog for details. But I can give you pointers and examples, uh, especially in the seminar, of how it works, how the process works, and how things swing back and forth in court. One of the things I'm going to show in the seminar is uh, me, actually, uh, on uh, transcript, uh, objecting to the questions of the lawyer for the so-called trust uh, uh, in a case that that I won, and with a caveat of uh, ca- a case the preceding day where we lost, the key difference being that the case I won, the judge sustained my objections in evidence, and the case I lost, the judge overruled uh, my objections and. For whatever reason, the uh, pellet court uh, affirmed his decision. I've always said that homeowners should hire an attorney licensed in the jurisdiction in which their property is located. And I believe that. I, I just don't think that there are many or any uh, pro se litigants who will truly know how to try a case and how to litigate it up until the point of trial and and at trial. But as we all know, the number of attorneys willing to take on foreclosure defense is dwindling. So homeowners are forced to save their homes themselves if they can, and some do it, uh, using the things that I talk about on this radio show and on my blog. Thousands have benefited from 
what I've done uh, without compensation, I might add. Um, some people, it takes literally 10 years of court battles to save their home. Uh, others, shorter time, and still others are able to drive what they consider to be a, uh, a, a good settlement. But remember, your own, the whole point of litigation is that the other side has no business even approaching you. And so if you settle with them, you theoretically have a, a vulnerability to an action by a real creditor. Because you know there's one out there, you got the money. The question is whether uh, a settlement with an entity that has uh, interfered with the transaction, uh, whether that will hold in the face of a true owner of the debt taking action. And it may be that the true owner of the debt will never take action. I don't know. I want to thank the many people who supported our last seminar on death of a salesman and the people who are supporting our next seminar uh, on evidence. And um, if you go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com, You'll get further details on the next seminar. There'll be materials that will be distributed uh, before and after the seminar. Um, tonight, we're talking about how to apply the rules of evidence and some discussion of discovery. Follow the instructions you received when you called in, and you'll appear on my dashboard. Questions will be answered if I can get to them in the order they come in. We have 30-minute show time, which means 28 talk time. Please tell us the status of your case and ask one question. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm. And this show is specially brought to you by because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank all of you who are contributing. And for those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or the link um, on the description of this episode or call 202-838-6345, which is our main number and not the number to call into this show. And pledge whatever you think you can afford. If the show has value for you, if the blog has value for you, if our other activities have value to you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. In my last show, I talked about exceptions to the rule of hearsay and more specifically the business records exception to the rule of hearsay. The rule of hearsay being, if it's hearsay, it's not going to be accepted as evidence. And then there's uh, dozens of exceptions. Uh, but let's dig deeper tonight than that surface level of hearsay, exception, etc. 
let's get to the question about evidence, about proof, and about persuasion. No, they're not all the same, evidence, proof, and persuasion. They're different. They're related, but they're different animals. You might have information that tends to prove something important to your case, but it's not evidence and proves nothing unless you can get it into the record as evidence, and none of that matters if you are not also persuading the trier of fact, which, of course, is usually a judge. Litigation is about evidence. It's a process under which two competing views seek the attention and the approval of the judge. The main thing you need to know is that with certain exceptions, the only party in foreclosure cases, the only party with evidence to present to the court is going to be the foreclosing party. And, of course, there are some exceptions to that with forgeries and whatnot. But generally speaking, although many homeowners may put on a case after the uh, plaintiff has rested, uh, or uh, in non-judicial states, the, the, the homeowner is required to anticipate what the allegations would be um, uh, and contest those. You may have suspicions, but that's not evidence. You may even have evidence that a signature is a forgery, but the trier of fact has the ultimate discretion as to how much weight to give that evidence. That's where the burden of persuasion is important. If you gloss over it, if you present it quickly and so forth and don't draw the connections for the judge, he may recognize it that it was a forgery, but he may decide that it doesn't make any difference or he doesn't believe that it really was a forgery or whatever. You must be prepared to go to war and run a ground battle at the time of trial. So litigation strategy needs to be focused on what you know damn well about the debt, the note, and the mortgage, but can't prove because you can't get the information out of your opposing party. That's their game, and in most cases it succeeds. Uh, especially when the homeowner does not actually contest it. So because some 96% of all homeowners who are advised of foreclosure walk away, you have all these cases that have been decided, quote, unquote, uh, in favor of the foreclosing party even though there's never, never been an adjudication on the merits. That creates a whole atmosphere of, well, the banks must be right. The services must be right. They must be, you know, they may have committed some errors, but that doesn't entitle the homeowner to get a free house. And, of course, our point has always been that the homeowner is not looking for a free house. The homeowner is looking for the relationship that he originally contracted for, which is, him and an actual lender. And most homeowners don't get that. 
and but that uh, uh, line of reasoning is what carries you into uh, uh, the schemes of the banks and the servicers. In every scheme, there are fault lines, defects, and problems that can make the scheme collapse in on itself. Uh, this incidentally is true whether the scheme is legal or illegal. In the case of illegal schemes like the false claims of securitization that we see in the current marketplace, taking the time to understand securitization and how it actually played out over the last 30 years is of utmost importance if you're going to take the other side down. This involves not speculation, but real knowledge. So you're going to have to not only read things, you're going to have to get uh, advice from people uh, like me who have experience both in investment banking and law, who understand this culture and what w was really behind the scheme. You must know and understand the cracks and fault lines, the defects and the gaps. Mostly, you're going to be dealing with gaps in the proof, the so-called proof that the uh, foreclosing party puts on. And I should say that it's really not the foreclosing party. It's an attorney who's actually representing the server, servicer and not the named foreclosing party. That's a whole issue. But getting to that, there's certain battles you don't fight. And we've tried it a number of ways and attempting to get an admission that the uh, attorney does not really represent the plaintiff or does not re represent the beneficiary under a deed of trust has, it, 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 with the exception of one case, uh, it's never worked. So we must be extraordinarily vigilant at trial in promptly raising objections as things are happening. That when, when I say as things are happening, that means that when the lawyer says to the witness, and what did he say to you, that's just a, an example, you should immediately object and not wait until the answer and especially not wait until the next question is asked. You'll be deemed to have waived your objections. And objections like hearsay, foundation, etc., these are very important objections because it runs to whether the proof that's being offered is admissible at all. And if it isn't, then they have to find another way of proving it. And the fact is that deep down, they have no way of proving their case because in most cases, whoever is in named to be the beneficiary or the plaintiff in, in the foreclosure, they don't own the debt. And the paper that r reportedly is possessed by them is not possessed by them. And even if it was, it doesn't mean anything. So you need to be digging very deep when performing cross-examination, 
and realize that you're cross-examining a robo-witness who in actuality knows nothing. The goal of the banks is to put somebody on the witness stand who doesn't know enough to get them in trouble. So use that. Information comes in all sizes and shapes. Most of the information we see on the Internet or even on cable news is essentially defective, false, or even irrelevant. And most of that is not subject to proof. It's just there. If you don't have the author of the information to testify about the authenticity of the information contained in a particular article or document or whatever, there should be no way to get it into the court record as evidence. But there's the rub. The lawyers for the banks get such worthless information into the court record all the time because nobody stops them when they're doing it. And that's why you keep hearing from me objection. Objection hearsay, objection foundation, objection lack of authentication, etc. Most objections are waived if they're not raised when the offending evidence is being presented to the record. So even the worst kind of evidence will come in as evidence, and in the absence of you putting on anything that could be considered proof of anything or evidence that tends to prove something, <coughs> the only thing the judge has to go on is the crap evidence that the bank put into the record. So I've used several words here that mean different things. Information is just data that comes from anywhere. It proves nothing, and it is worthless in a court of law with certain exceptions. But as the lawyers for bankers have understood, worthless information presented in the right way can give off the illusion of credibility, at which point it will be admitted into the record by the judge and lack of objection or lack of cross-examination will leave it there as the only thing for the judge to rule on. If information is false, you don't need to actually prove it's false. You need to show that whoever is trying to get the information into the court record doesn't know one thing about the event or is lying. If they are lying, and the information is truly false, then there should be plenty of inconsistent statements and information that the robot witness cannot reconcile. That's where really close forensic investigation and examination is important. Because when you look at the signature block, when you look at the documents, the markings in the upper right hand, upper left hand, or the bottom of the page, you will see that certain things that ought to be there are not there. And the content of correspondence and so forth will often be inconsistent with whatever the robo-witness is saying in court. So you've got to be prepared to force him to reconcile his testimony with what is contained in the letter or whatever it is. So... 
what we're trying to do with the robo-witness is basically blow him up, present them with things he can't reconcile or can't explain. It's not an exercise in proving that the lawyers and the banks and the services are murderers and belong in jail. It's showing that the robo-witness cannot reconcile or explain basic information uh, that's been accepted into the record as evidence or even as demonstrative evidence uh, uh, to be referred to. Foundation is required for all information to be accepted as evidence, except certain things that are recognized judicially as credible. So this thing called judicial notice can result in evidence being accepted if it comes from a reliable source, independent, with no stake in the outcome. A pooling and servicing agreement made to order for litigation and uploaded to sec.gov and then printed out from the SEC site is not an independent nor even a reliable source as it is a self-serving document loaded up by your opposition and then printed as though it was a government or government-issued or approved document. It isn't. And besides, judicial notice will at best take note of the existence of the document. Anything in the document that is contested, which you need to make clear, is at issue and is not proven by that document. Like all documents, the PSA must have foundation and authentication. Now, we're getting closer to this in some courts. When we say foundation and authentication, we mean it needs to be the real original document with signatures and all the exhibits attached. You practically never see that. Hopefully, you will have asked for those in discovery at the time, by the time of trial, and the other side refused. It refused because it probably doesn't exist. And nobody wants their blue ink signature floating around in courthouses. So you're probably not going to get that, and that will entitle you to file a motion in limine to prevent them from proving anything derived from the pooling and servicing agreement. If you go to the seminar, you'll get a little bit more information on that. If you keep reading uh, books on evidence and uh, uh, other things on YouTube, etc., you'll see, you'll get the feel of it. It takes a while to get to really understand what the difference is between evidence that means something and evidence that doesn't. If you don't object and cross-examine and drive your narrative so that it becomes the main narrative of the case, then of course the other side is going to win. Anyone can win any lawsuit by default. But, I will also add that evidence actually does come into play even when there is a default. Now, I just use the word default 
meaning a default in not objecting and a default in not cross-examining, but there's also the judicial default in which the uh, homeowner doesn't show up. It's still required, the court is still required to have a hearing on the amount of damages. Liability is assumed when there's a judicial default. So you can come in as late as after the default has been entered and at the time of so-called trial <coughs> and contest if you have a good basis for doing so, which in many cases you will because of the computations they made uh, to just fit uh, whatever it was that they wanted the numbers to look like. Um, I've also used the words proof and persuasion. The burden of proof is not the same as the burden of persuasion. These are actually subjective terms that have no objective means to verify them. Proof may be accepted as such, but then given very little weight when the court is considering the evidence and deciding who wins. So, your job as defenders is to interrupt the flow of persuasion, that's where objections are really handy, and gradually, inch by inch, on the ground battle, start persuading the judge that this case, the lawyers or the servicers or the banks screwed up. Remember that even the most biased judge wants to rule for the opposition sometimes just to appear fair. So they may rubber stamp a hundred foreclosures, but they'll want to have, you know, some case where they ruled against the banks. The point here is that evidence is about credibility. And that means whether you are pro se or you are a lawyer listening to this, that every step you make in the courtroom and every document you file into the court file should address the issue of whether or not you personally are credible. That's the context for all offers of evidence in court. There's a lot of people I've seen lose cases because they put all their faith in the information that they wanted to convert to evidence instead of making sure that they had established some kind of presence in the court that invited the opinion that they were credible. So if documents come from a third party unrelated to the litigation with no possible interest in the outcome, then the authentication process is easy enough to establish credibility and the document will come in. But there's no servicer that has no interest in the outcome. And there's no trustee that has no interest in the outcome. The 
beneficiary, oddly enough, in the deed of trust, and the plaintiff, the named plaintiff in the judicial states, is oddly enough one of the few people that actually has no actual interest in the outcome because they're never going to see any money regardless of what happens with the case. The property is going to be liquidated and the liquidation of the property will mean that some servicer is going to collect on servicer advances that they never out of the liquidation of the property, the sale of the property. So that's all I can do in a half an hour. I can do more in three and a half hours where you'll also be hearing from forensic experts on how they examine the documents and matters of record uh, to help me uh, give opinions and present the better side. See you in two weeks. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.